Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. John chapter 8, a pretty famous story um, in the New Testament. And uh, I, I, the, um, the, the struggle, I, I think, um, in, in talking about this is that we all experience this from time to time emotionally, but this is more than an emotional response, um, what we're going to see today. Uh, maybe you've been in this situation uh, because of something you said, something you did, something you didn't say, something you didn't uh, do, and you just have this moment where you're like, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. Anybody do this? And then you figure out, oh, it's actually okay. And then like the the whole thing just releases. Like even your body posture goes from something like this to something significantly more relaxed. This is kind of where we are in this particular story. I'm in John chapter 8. And uh, um, it it is good news uh, for those of us who are in trouble. So if you have somebody who's in trouble on your row, just look down the road and just go, hey, man, they're talking to you today, okay? Um, If they don't know that they're in trouble, even more reason to look down the row and go, hey, he's talking to you. Okay, uh, John chapter 8, just a little bit of context in in, uh, chapter 7. This event has been covering multiple chapters now. Um, where in this particular case, he's at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. He is, uh, Jesus is, um, he's in the midst of all of this crowd, in the midst of uh, uh, saying some things and doing some things in their midst. And here we go, John chapter 8. Uh, the evening before they each went to his own, own house, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat, he sat down and taught them. And before we run on, I just want to say one more time. I know we hit this a couple of weeks ago. I want to say it again. I think it's important to say it again. All the people came to him. Now, what does that mean? All kinds of people. That's what it's saying. They're, like, it, it was it was something. It was it was a gathering. It was it was incredible. And there were people from all sorts of backgrounds and stripes and colors and outlooks and all this kind of stuff. And he sat down. And what did he do? He taught them all. He taught them all. Jesus is modeling for us what Paul declares later, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for how many people who believe? How many? All. What kinds of people who believe? Well, all. Uh, What kinds of sinners in their past life? Well, all kinds of sinners. There is coming, I mean, we have experienced it. We are experiencing it. We will experience it. There are coming days when... Somebody will show up in your Sunday school class, in your small group, in this room right here, or in another setting in which you find yourself where people are gathered around and talking about the scriptures and prioritizing um, a life with Jesus. And there will be somebody who walks in, who looks differently than you, thinks differently than you, votes differently than you, sins differently than you, and does so in ways maybe that we don't particularly like or want to talk about out in the open. And what is the best response of the church of God, with the people of Jesus in that moment to do exactly what he did? Hey, we're so glad you're here. Let's talk about the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. We don't need to preach that again, do we? Okay, verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Um. <clears throat> More to say about that. And placing her in the midst. So Jesus is having, he's in this common space. So picture in your mind uh, something like Starbucks. So you're at Dunn Brothers Coffee Shop over there in Friendswood. Uh, You're at the Waffle House, wherever it may be that you kind of gather. And you would be comfortable having conversations with a broad group of people about things that are going on and about following Jesus. And all of a sudden, some religious folks show up with a lady who was caught in adultery. 
They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in this, in the act of adultery. So they just ratcheted up the tension here. Um, now, in the law, Moses commanded to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. I want to p- point out um, three things today. The first one is in those first few verses there. And that is, uh, we have good news for those of us who are in trouble. And it starts with universal guilt. That's where it starts, universal guilt. Just pause here and go ahead and answer the question that you may or may not be awake enough to ask yet, but hopefully you will at some point. How is universal guilt part of good news? Like how is this? Here's how it's good news. You do not measure up. You can quit asking the question if you're good enough. You're not. You you have not stacked enough blocks on the one side of the scale to measure um, and, and bring balance to what is on the other side of the scale. You've not done that. You haven't. So it points us somewhere. The universal guilt says you can quit asking those kinds of questions. Three people I want to point out here that are experiencing this universal guilt. Um, And the first one starts with the lady. She was caught in adultery. And then verse 4, teacher, woman's been caught in the very act of adultery. Meaning what? She knew her guilt. She was bearing it. She was bearing her shame. She was in the, the, the midst of this group of people, people gathered around, kind of in the religious common area of the time. And she's hopefully caught in the act. She was able to grab a blanket or something. Otherwise, she would have been paraded through town and to this moment, naked. She knew her guilt and she was bearing, she was bearing her shame. Both the act... And the posture of our hearts. Because some people think about just the act. No, no. But there's also a posture of heart that says, Hey, God, thanks so much for telling me the things that you've told me. Thanks so God, uh, much, God, for giving me the things that you've given me, commanding me in the ways that you've commanded me. But the reality is, I think I got this. I think I know better. I'm going to reject your goodness. I'm going to reject your direction. I'm going to reject your wisdom. I think I know what's better. She had made a God out of her own desires and preferences. And the God looked exactly like her. Her idol looked exactly like her. I know that doesn't apply to anybody else in here. She was caught in the act. Now, to, to recognize that maybe, just maybe, she's not the only one in the room who's guilty, does a couple of things. Number one, um, it it, it breaks the kind of arrogance that says, hey, you know what? I know this is true, God, for everybody else. Like all these people over here and those people over there and most of the people right here, except for this on this row and in this little section right here, it's true for everybody else. But our little part right here, like we're the exception to this rule. You are not the exception to the rule. You're not. Everybody is guilty before God, universally so. It breaks that kind of arrogance. But it also, in some sense, brings a sense of comfort because you look down the row and you think, oh, I'm sitting by sinners. And you look down the row, I mean, you're sitting by grade A sinners. I mean, like really good sinners, exceptional even sinners. But also, it's a recognition that there is a, there is a guilt that is deeper than even she knew in that moment. She knew that she was guilty. Um, but she, she was standing in the crowd, exposed, caught in the act. Her, her sin laid bare. But, but, 
It was more than just the act for which she was guilty. The, the guilt ran much, much deeper than that. And, and the one who could see just how guilty she was, was standing there with her. He knew all of the thoughts that she had. He knew all of the choices that she made that led up to that. He knew all of those kind of things. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. She's guilty before God. Um, the, sec- the second person I want to highlight here uh, is actually doesn't appear in the story except by inference. Because if she's caught in the act of adultery, then that means there's a man involved in this situation. Where is he? We don't know. We don't know where he is. Some people think this was a setup. Some people think he was like, oh, I'm out of here. Some people think any number of things. It doesn't really matter. There was a guy in the situation that thinks he got away with it. Nobody in our world or in our culture or in our neighborhood or in our family does something stupid and then thinks that they get away with it. I recognize that. But there, there is a man in this story who represents those who think that they get away from, they, that they got away with it. Though he got away with this particular instance, escaping exposure or immediate consequence for our sin is not the same as escaping sin. Let me say that again. Escaping exposure or discovery of our sin or escaping the immediate consequence of our sin is not the same as escaping sin. You may be able to escape part of this, the immediate consequence or the exposure, but you will not, you will not escape the latter. You will not escape sin. There is no such thing as secret sin. There's none. Couple of places where the Bible specifically uh, addresses this. Uh, in Luke chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus is talking, and here's what he says Hey, you, you need to be really thoughtful about this. What is previously unseen will ultimately be shown. What is said in secret will be shattered from the rooftops. How about that? Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, um, verse 13 says, uh, re- see, that, Hebrews 4 is an astounding passage because chapter 4, verse 12, uh, the word of the Lord, it, it, the word of God is, is a sharp two-edged sword. It pierces down and lays us. And then um, verse 14, oh, but we have a sympathetic high priest who cares for us and was tempted just as we are. Sandwiched between verse 12 and verse 14 is verse 13. And all will be laid bare before him to whom we shall give an account. Laid bare. Everything is going to be seen. Everything is going to be known. He thought he got away with it, but he didn't. Um, And you think to yourself, okay, yeah, I get it. The actions and stuff, we will give an account. No, 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 no. It's more than that. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, even careless words, the, the flippant things, those are things for which we will give an account. Moses said this to the people of Israel in Numbers chapter 32. Be sure, and boy, I mean, we've had a rash of this. Be sure your sin will find you out. There is no such thing as secret sin. You can neither erase it like you can your browser history, nor can you escape it. Um, my wife and I, this is back when we lived in, uh, in Waco. My wife and I were on our way back from, I believe it was a, a church Christmas party. There were people following us. Um, we were way outside of Waco. This guy had thrown a party out at his ranch area and, uh, we were coming back in town and we had just like, just, uh, purchased some property and they had just, um, started building on our lot there. And, uh, we were way out 1637 coming back in and, um, there's a little, just 
offshoot thing that you turn to, to get on there. So we're coming back in and uh, I'm driving. We're talking, having a great time, had a great time at the party. And we're just trucking on along and past a DPS officer going the other way. He hits his brakes, puts on his lights. And I look down and I'm like, what's the big deal? I'm going 70. Past the speed limit sign, 55. There's six or eight people behind me, though, so it takes him quite a while to get the clearance to turn around. In the meantime, we hit our turnoff. So I turned off. Because I was going, we were going by to check the house no matter what, so I did it, right? And then he goes by, and ultimately I think, oh, got away with that one. I'm confessing here, okay? It's good for my soul. Some of us live exactly like that. Oh, I'm sure that there are people behind me who were in pretty bad shape right now, but I, I got away with this one. Oh, oh, I mean, I didn't know that it wasn't 70. I thought it. There is no such thing as secret sin. The man thought he got away with it, but we won't. We cannot erase it. We cannot escape it. Last group, verse uh, f- uh, 5, starting here. Uh, let's, let's pick up verse 4. They, that's the Pharisees, said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him. They might have some charge to bring against him. Not just the woman, not just the man, the Pharisees. They were also guilty. Why? Because their righteousness was actually self-righteousness. They were sitting there in what they thought, um, what, what, what they presumed was their superiority and their standing before God. And this is reflected in a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew, excuse me, Luke chapter 18, where a Pharisee is praying. He's like, oh Lord, thank you that I'm not like these people, those who extort stuff and those who commit adultery and those who do this and that. Uh, you know, thankfully, I, I, I tithe of everything I have and I fast twice a week. Aren't you glad I'm on your team, God? Team us. That's what self-righteousness sounds like. But their heart posture before God showed no humility and no gratitude but only self-exaltation, look at me, and earning. God, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes on everything I got. So now, I'm counting on you to hold up your end of the deal. Surely you're going to do this because I do this other stuff. People who live with that kind of self-righteousness and that kind of superiority mindset without gratitude and without humility have a haunting sense of never being enough or never being at home in the presence of God. They're always kind of looking over their shoulder. We okay? Here's the thing about self-righteousness. In condemning her, in condemning her, they also condemn themselves. Why? Verse 6, listen. This they said to, this they said to what? What's that verb right there? To what? To test. This they said to test him. Now, This is really important because that that particular word is chosen by John, I think, uh, because in Matthew, excuse me, I keep saying Matthew, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 16, Jesus uh, quotes this when he um, interacts with uh, Satan out in the wilderness. You shall not put the Lord your God to, somebody help me, the test, the test. This they said to 
Test him. Don't put your Lord at your test. This they said to test him. Like by bringing condemnation on her, you know what they're doing? They're bringing condemnation on themselves because they're putting Jesus to the test. And by the way, this is right after, I mean dead after, the most important passage to the Pharisees in the Old Testament. Uh, they call it the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Like this is that. Right after that is don't put your Lord your God, don't put the Lord your God to a test. Oh, what are they doing? They're testing. They're guilty of breaking the law. And furthermore, they are putting anyone who disagreed with them on blast. This is what happens to Nicodemus at the end of chapter 7. Are you one of them too? This kind of thing. This is how self-righteousness works. We think we're condemning. In our superiority, we think we're condemning someone else, but actually we're bringing condemnation on ourselves. And anybody who disagrees with us, guess what? They're idiots too. Shame on them. Universal guilt. Look at how Jesus responds, starting in the middle of verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. We just pause here and say, do we know what he wrote? Answer is, no, we don't have a clue. If it were important, we'd know. We don't know. Everything else is speculation. Verse 7. And they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. So universal guilt. Good news. Good news. For those of us in trouble, universal guilt. We're all in trouble. We don't have to worry about that. Secondly, sacrificial mercy. Sacrificial mercy. Um, The the condemnation was clear. Back in verse 5, the law, in in the law, Moses commanded... We should stone such people. The law was clear. It was clear then. It's clear now. Here's the deal. The condemnation was clear. Why? Because for sin, why, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. So why? Why is God so serious about this? Why this stuff in particular? Why? What's the big deal here? Because we are infinitely offending the one who gives us life. So if you offend the life giver to that degree... Death is the consequence of that. This is what Paul is saying in Romans 6.23. It's what they're pointing to here. The law commanded us to stone such. What do you say? Some of you know a little bit. I mean, you got this much of what this feels like. uh, Because you've raised sassy kids. Don't raise your hand. But if you know... You have this moment, moms and dads react a little bit different, but mom and dad, something like, do you know, I go to work, I pay the bills, I do all this kind of stuff, I insure your livelihood, do you want to start paying all this stuff on you? Like, what do you want to do? We kind of go the material route, dads typically go the material route. Moms are like, I carried you around for nine months, I literally gave you life, your first breath came, like, do you... If we take that and push that up to some cosmic scale, we're starting to just get the hint of the aroma of just how terrible our sin is to God. That kind of ingratitude, that kind of self-exaltation. Condemnation was clear and deserved. 
Jesus offers, though, freedom from punishment. This is where the good news starts getting really good. Verse 7, they continue asking him. He stood up, let him who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. He saved her from what was due her. She was due condemnation. She was due the death penalty because of the way that they um, uh, set up and lived under their law. He saved her from what she was due. Th- this, this kind of freedom from punishment is one of the effects of the ministry of Jesus in our world. He comes to our lives. He comes into our situations. He comes into our circumstances. And there are times when, thankfully, amen and amen, um, we, we, we are rescued, if you will, from this kind of punishment. But it's not merely, it's not merely that particular effect in this particular moment. Freedom from punishment goes far beyond just this moment for her. Freedom from punishment significantly longer lasting. Look, look at what happens. The, if that's the effect, what's the cause that brought that about? And that is that mercy requires sacrifice. Jesus said, let him who is without sin among you be the first throw a stone. The one who could throw a stone, what? Didn't. Wouldn't. Mercy requires sacrifice. We, we know this. We know this. There's been a, like a, I don't know. There's been a string of things that have happened in our house lately involving glass things hitting the floor. And when they do, I mean, b- multiple people involved when they do, you hear tink, 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 right? It's just one of those things. And you're like, I know you weren't like throwing it at your sibling or any other. Sometimes stuff just happens. Dog knocks it off, whatever. Tink, tink, tink. And inevitably, when recently upstairs, you're kind of winding down the evening, but then you hear tink, tink, tink. And you're like, I know what the next few minutes of my life are going to be like. And so off you go, right? And if, if you know, oh, dad, sorry, sorry, sorry. I, what do you say? Somebody breaks a glass. You're like, eh, okay. Let's pretend, though, you've got your aunt's or your grandmother's, uh, like, like you've got the, uh, th- their lamp. And it's an heirloom for your family. And somebody comes over and they trip over the cord and they hit it with their elbow. And then it's not tink, tink, tink. It is just full-on crash. And you think to yourself, maybe one of two things. Oh, that was my aunt's. That was my grandma's lamp. That was really important to our family. Ugh. Or you think, God, that was my answer to my grandma. I'm glad someone could that because I didn't want it in the first place, but I felt really obligated to it. I don't know. Let's pretend it's on this side, though, where you think to yourself, gosh, that was an heirloom. And they're like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. Is there anything I can do? You can't really replace an heirloom. Hey, it's okay. Somebody, a kid drops a glass. A dog knocks it off. You're like, eh, it's okay. Uh, somebody knocks over an heirloom. You think, oh, man, bummer. Yeah, uh, it's okay. It's okay. Somebody takes your car, drives it, wrecks it. And you think to yourself, to- totals it. You think to yourself, what, it's okay? Is that what you're saying? No. Like, you recognize, like, yeah, there may be insurance coming, but it, there's going to be a deductible. Yeah, there may be insurance coming, but it's not going to buy a new car. Because if you've bought a new car recently, you know that whatever your car is insured for, it ain't the same as what you're going to be getting. And so at that point, what do you do? Somebody has to pay. There comes a point where uh, we will run out of glasses in the Henderson household and we will have to buy some more. There comes a point where you will need a lamp in the corner. 
maybe it'll be more stylish than what your grandmother passed down to you. There comes a point where somebody will have to replace the vehicle that was wrecked. Mercy, if I'm going to show mercy, it requires sacrifice. Somebody has to pay. And in this particular instance, when Jesus stood up and said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her, what he is saying is that the one without sin would offer himself for her. The only way she avoided the stones was for him to accept the cross. That's the only way. He will substitute himself for her and her adultery. Not just kind of standing in the vicinity of it going, eh, it's okay. But taking it on himself. Bearing it himself. And go to the cross. Not, not just saying, hey, don't worry about it. But saying instead, I'm going to be the one to pay for it. The reason Jesus says to her, let him who is without, says to the crowd, let the one who is without sin be the first to throw a stone is because he was the one who was worthy. He wasn't going to do it, but he was going to make sure that the debt was paid. Church family, listen to me. That was true for this lady, embarrassed, guilty, um, shamed, caught in adultery. And guess what? It's true for you too. It's true for you too. Sacrificial mercy. Last thing. Genuine transformation. Look at verse 8. Once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Genuine transformation. I just note a couple of things here. Number one, the situation was transformed because Jesus was the one who uh, uh, gave mercy. Mercy was given and it transformed the situation. Sometimes the best thing that we can do is do just like Jesus did and ignore those who are loud and demanding. Just bend bend down and write on the ground. And especially if it's religiously flavored, ignoring religious people will drive them nuts. Jesus transformed the situation by giving mercy. And it was, as it says here, uh, uh, beginning with the older ones, they all went away. They just started dropping their rocks and were like, dude, I'm out. Uh, Hey, for those of us with a little bit more miles on the tires than others, may we be the kind of people who are mercy first people. Some of the zealous uh, young kids are like, let's get out. And then they're like, where'd everybody go, man? That's the scene. The situation was transformed by mercy that was given. Secondly, her life, and let's bring it down to her life. Her life was transformed by the mercy giver. Verse 10, Jesus stood up, said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And then look at what she she responded. She said what? No one what? What's the next word? No one? Lord. It's a statement of faith. Yes, the, the, the situation, thankfully, was transformed. Sometimes it doesn't go that quickly or easily. But her life was transformed by the mercy giver. No one, Lord. No one, Lord. And then he said this. Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Why? Because he knew what he was going to do. Chapter 8 is chapter 8. And the reason why he could say that in chapter 8 is because of what happened in chapter 19 when Jesus went to the cross and paid for sin. And the last word out of his mouth, according to John, was what? And he's finished. It's done. 
The payment for sin is done. Paul, reflecting on this um, in in, uh, Colossians chapter 2, I read it just this week. What a glorious, incredible passage. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead uh, in your trespasses. So we're universally guilty, and the result of that is death. You were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. We were not set apart for God. We were set apart for ourselves, just like that lady. Her desires had produced an idol that looked just like her. Same for us. Dead in your trespasses, uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us. Somebody help me with the next word. Having forgiven us. How many of our sins? How many does it say? All. All of our sins. Having forgiven us. All of our sins, not the public ones that are particularly shameful, not, not just the private ones, not, not the ones that we are willing to confess, even the ones that we are, don't even know that we're doing. He has forgiven all of our sins, not just the reputable ones, but the irreputable ones, not just the ones that are out there, but the ones that are done in secret. He has forgiven us all of our sins. How did he do so? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, having nailed it to the cross. Jesus took on her adultery, and he took on the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, and he took on the the excuses and the uh, uh, I'm going to get away with this attitude of the man. He took all of that on, and he bore it in his body on the cross so that he could look at you and me and say, it's finished. All, all, all of our sin is paid for. Life was transformed by the mercy giver. When he says to her, neither do I condemn you. That's the basis of that. And then he says, go, go and sin no more. You are not enslaved to sin, which always does enslave, by the way. We'll get this in the next week or so. John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus talks about, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But I, Jesus, he came to set people free. Um, and she is not enthralled by its empty promises because it always does promise and never delivers to the degree that it promises. What did this transform life look like? Let me give you three things just to ponder. Number one, uh, a life that is free from sin and shame. Some of you can't imagine that, but that's exactly what Jesus is bringing about in her. And he wants to bring about in you. A life that is free from sin and shame. Why? Because he paid for all of it. Not most of it. All of it. Not some of it. All of it. Not the big ones. All of it. Some of us live as if we are driving a Prius with a U-Haul trailer behind it. Like those two things don't fit together. But you feel obligated to haul around all of your stuff. Some of you are so good at this that you not only haul around your stuff, you pick up other people's stuff and throw it in there too. I don't know how I'm responsible for this, but I feel responsible for it. Therefore, I'm going to feel shame for them or because of their choices too. Somehow it's impacting me. I'm going to carry their shame also. Jesus is in the business of setting people free from sin and shame, just like he did with this woman. So he wants to do with you. A life transformed, a life free from sin and shame. The psalmist, the poet, describes it this way, as far as the east is from the west. That's how far he's removed your transgression from you. So much so that he has forgotten it. That's how the Bible describes it. He's forgotten it. 
Because Jesus has paid for it. Secondly, not only a life free from sin and shame, this life that had been transformed by the mercy giver is a life of peaceful assurance. She stood there after the fact, no one, Lord, no one, Lord. There's a peaceful assurance in that. And you may think to yourself, how in the world do I know that my sin is, the, is what has been paid for? Because the scripture describes Jesus. Um, as facing down the cross in the, the night before he was crucified, he faced down all of the, the terror that was in front of him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what did he do? Hey, listen, God, if there's any other way that I'm out of this thing, I want it. And then he said, nevertheless, not really what I want. I want ultimately what you want. He freely chose to go to the cross for you and for me. You want to know about the love that God has for you. You want to know the root of the assurance whereby you can live and walk free. Listen, it is that, that Jesus willingly went to the cross on your behalf. That kind of peaceful assurance. He is, as John says in his first letter, he is faithful and just to forgive. Faithful every time and just. There's not a legal way somebody's going to backdoor accusation and condemnation back into your life. And if you think to yourself, if he defeated sin and death for me, then I'm okay. If Jesus has got that part squared away, then I really am all right. Peaceful assurance. A life free from sin and shame, a life life of peaceful assurance. And lastly, a life that has been nourished, nourished by his love. His love was demonstrated there at the cross and today still speaks because he cared. He willingly went and did what you could not do for your own, uh, on your own. He willingly accomplished for you things that you never would have been able to pull off. And he did so to bring you into relationship with him. Not just to uh, say, okay, it's going to be okay. Not not just to go, hey, listen, I, I did this for you. Now don't screw up anymore. So many of us live with this mindset. Okay, God, um, I get it. I get it. Like you paid the price for me. And now I'm just going to, I got to do my best in order to get there. Listen, I I grew up in Huntsville, just north of here. Uh, Every so often uh, they would do a prisoner release from the walls unit, which was downtown right next to the church where I grew up. They, They would give them bus fare and 20 bucks typically. Some of you, that's how you think that that's how you think about life with Jesus right now. God, thanks that you got me out of prison. I hope this 20 bucks in bus fare is enough to get me somewhere. A couple of bologna sandwiches, I'm sure I'll make it. Listen to me. For those of you who think that that's the kind of God that you're set up to follow, I just want you to know it is it could not be more different than that. He has set you free. That is true. And he is nourishing you with his love. The riches of the kingdom of God are available to everyone who puts their trust in the king. Everyone. He ignored others to save her. A life free from sin and shame. A life of peaceful assurance. A life nourished by his love. So let me ask you this. We're done. Which one do you need to hear more? Neither do I condemn you. Unhook the trailer, y'all. Let it go. Put it down. You weren't designed to carry that weight. Jesus has already carried it for you. And if you try to pick it up and tote it around, you're not honoring him. You're dishonoring him. 
lay down sin and shame. Neither do I condemn you. Do you need to hear that this morning? Or, which one? Go and sin no more. Nourished with his love. Motivated by this. Transformed by this. Which do you need to hear more? Let's pray together. Every individual in here, Father, I know, I know, will have a different response to what's being said, has been said. Um, So I ask you that uh, as these next few moments just unfold, that you would uh, help us to respond individually to what you are saying. Holy Spirit, make it real to each one of us. Put our name on something today and make it clear what that is. We ask you this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.